a great line in uh, the song Cornerstone around on Christ the Solid Rock, that second verse about our anchor holding within the veil. What does that mean? <laughs> Sometimes we sing songs and we might know what that means. You might very well know what that means. That's great. Sometimes we don't exactly know what that means. It's really neat to think that um, in the Old Testament, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer the blood sacrifice for the sin of the nation, they would go past the veil into the Holy of Holies. Of course, if that priest were to be harboring sin in his heart, or having rejected God in his heart, but outwardly, externally um, enjoying the auspices of the high priesthood, they would tie a rope around their ankle. So there was a tying going on there too. But if that person would enter into the Holy of Holies, having not dealt with his own uh, relationship with the Lord, he would die. He would keel over and die. They tied a rope around his ankle so they could go and pull him out because they didn't want to go in there. So there was that kind of a tying going on. But we sing, we actually throw the anchor in. There's a tying that way too. But we want to be tied to what's in there, not tied to what's out here. And then remember this too with that song and that idea of the veil and the Holy of Holies. What happened when Christ died on the cross? That veil, which was inches and inches thick, and way too high. Nobody just, it wasn't hanging a shower curtain, okay? You couldn't go up to it and like those strong guys with the telephone books back in the day, you, you wouldn't do that. It would take a miracle. And it ripped from top to bottom. Christ alone. Amen? Alright, well we're back in 1 Corinthians 3 this week in our series, Servants and Stewards. And so far in 1 Corinthians 3, we have talked about babies drinking milk and not being ready to digest solid food. We've talked about farming. Remember, Paul planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase. God caused the growth. And today we're going to transition into the construction of the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says this, For we are God's fellow workers... Uh, in that context, Paul and Apollos and whoever else working together under God, belonging to him, you, the church, he's speaking to the church at Corinth, you are God's field, which harkens back to the farming analogy. And then it says God's building, the construction of a temple. Remember, these illustrations are just that. They're illustrations, okay? Immature Christians don't actually projectile vomit up milk. You might think of uh, not so fondly of the days when when the babies would return what had uh, come down, return to sender, right? Uh, immature Christians don't actually do that. Uh, they just take the good food that they're receiving and spew out things like, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or mine, right? Little kids learn that pretty quick. They spew out words and actions that show they don't yet know how to process, how to digest what's important and what's not, what is spiritual and what is of the flesh. Uh, The church is not actually a cornfield, it turns out, and I'm not a hired farmer, but we do sow the seed of the gospel and water it with encouragement and teaching and prayer 
and God does bring in a harvest. Amen? And the church is not an actual building. We are meeting here today in this building, but none of us came to church this morning as much as the church came here. Does that make sense? And this building, the church, is what we're talking about and looking at today in 1 Corinthians 3. And instead of farmers and seeds and and harvest and and watering, uh, there will be builders and building materials and fire and loss and reward. So let's look into verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says this, According to the grace of God given to me, remember this is Paul writing, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else now is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Remember, this is at Corinth. Uh, And this foundation is the foundation that was laid at and for the church at Corinth. For that local church, Paul laid the foundation by preaching Christ. He he says that he's like a skilled master builder. The Greek word that uh, is translated as master builder is the word that we get the word architect from. And so as an apostle and as a planner of the church at Corinth, Paul served as the architect and general contractor, if you will, in this construction process. I remember in John chapter 2, we learned that it took over 46 years to build Herod's, Herod's temple in Jerusalem. It took 46 years It wasn't unusual in those times for a building of that magnitude to take decades to construct. So you see the analogy here, the illustration. Uh, You would literally have, in reality, one master builder who would oversee the laying of the foundation and get the plans all worked together and drawn up. And by the time he was finished with that part of the process, it was generally time for somebody else to come along. That builder would hand the baton off. And then somebody else would continue the work of building upon the foundation and raising up the structure from there. So Paul laid the foundation. Apollos built upon it, as would each successive leader. And though there is definitely an emphasis given to leadership in this illustration, Paul uses phrases like each one, no one, anyone, etc., to make sure that we know that everyone is counted in this evaluation. Leaders for sure, and, and everyone. And the phrase builds upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it in this verse. Uh, this is a, uh, the, the grammar here is a continually active process. It's continually happening. It's nonstop all the time. Paul laid the foundation of the gospel, preaching Christ and what God had revealed to him. And Apollos came and continued the building. Corinthian believers participated in the building. In the same way, our local church, this church, First Baptist, was planted in 1886. The foundation was laid and the building began 133 years ago. Several pastors and leaders have worked over time to continue the building. And all of us together, praise God, All of us together are in this continual process of building up the church still today. And that building is continuous. Everything we do, remember it's 24-7 nonstop, so everything we do as the church is part of this building project. From the sermons, 
the lessons, the conversations before and after church, the child care, the building repairs, and everything in between. All of it uh, part of the building process that is the building of the church. And remember, it's not the church, the entity, or the uh, nonprofit organization, or the building that we're in. It's us. It's all of us. Everything is included. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the foundation that Paul laid here at the church at Corinth. And in a way, this means the gospel of Jesus Christ being the foundation. But it also means all of scripture. There's a way that we could look at that and say it's the gospel. And there's a way that we have to look at that and say, well, it's the whole counsel of the word of God. And here's why I say that. Think about this. Jesus is the creator, is he not? Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is in creation and the sustaining of the world. Jesus is also the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so also in Christ Jesus all shall be made alive. Jesus is involved in creation. Adam and Eve are created and put on the earth, and they sin, and sin enters the picture. Remember, even in Genesis 3, God promised that through the seed of the woman, the head of that serpent would be crushed. The Messiah, Jesus, has promised already in that time. He is active and spoken of from the very beginning. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Genesis twenty two eighteen, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That seed is Christ. Jesus, the son of David, the king. Second Samuel seven sixteen. Your house, God promised to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, founded upon, existing, um, secured forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, who was that done in? Jesus Christ. Jesus is a sacrificial lamb, Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. At the Passover in Egypt, when Israel were still slaves, God enacted this this idea of a sacrificial lamb. And when he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You'll be spared and the sacrificial lamb and the blood sacrifice for sin throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament, who does that point to? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And on and on we could go. The whole overall narrative of the Bible points to Jesus. So the laying of the foundation and regularly tuning our thinking, clearing the debris away of getting caught up in the details of any particular passage like we can with even this one as we see today. All of this requires the task of pointing out Jesus and the gospel, seeing him and seeing the whole uh, details of the gospel from all of scripture. The promises made in the Old Testament, the promises kept in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. He has to be the foundation of First Baptist. 
He is our foundation. Verse 12 says this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, (coughs) wood, hay, or straw, sometimes it says stubble there, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The day, of course, being the return and the judgment of, or judgment by, Jesus Christ. So we're asking, what sort of work is this fire going to be revealing, or the judgment that's happening here? And so we see that the gold and silver and precious stone illustrate the good works, and the wood, hay, and straw, which are going to burn up in fire, right? Those illustrate not good works. So we have this uh, type of judgment set before us. It says in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we have here the possibility of reward. If it's the good stuff, right? The gold, silver, precious stone. Uh, The prospect of loss. If our works are wood, hay, and straw. And even with that, because both of those things are being built upon the foundation, Christ is still the foundation, both of these are believers. Or, or the work that's being done is the work of a believer. And so even if all of the building were of materials that were not of the gold and silver and precious stone, that person still escapes, it says so, or as though through fire. So think of it this way. I'm building up my building, I'm in my building building it up, and fire comes. And when fire comes, what do you want to do? If you're inside, you want to get out. (laughs) And should that building burn down to the ground, and should the building be entirely made of wooden, flammable type things, what's going to be left? In this passage, the foundation... And you. So praise God for that. (laughs) You might be only as through fire, but you're there and you're on the foundation. Okay, this person is a believer. This person is still saved. Verse 16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? There's a passage just like this in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, you heard this term before, like we shouldn't smoke and we shouldn't chew and we shouldn't drink and we shouldn't... Don't you know that God's... that you're God's temple? And and 1 Corinthians 6, 19 does speak to that. In that passage, the context is sexual purity. And, and Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's that individual aspect of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what's the context of this passage? The building is whom? It's the church. It's all of us. And so this you here, in English we, we lose that because you can be singular and you can be plural, but this is plural. So he's saying, in a sense, you all are uh, God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in us, like as a, as a body of believers, as a building put together by Christ, the spirit dwells in us. This is the church. We are God's building. Verse 17, 
if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is different, isn't it? This is not the person who's still left after everything's burned down and what's left is the foundation in in them. This person is not saved so as through fire. This person is destroyed. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. So this is the third possibility. We had these three options. Build with gold, silver, precious stones. Build with wood, hay, and straw. Or destroy. Build or build or destroy. You see the two options? There isn't a middle ground. We have in this in this illustration, we're either building or we're destroying. And the one who does not build on the foundation of Christ, who tears down the body of Christ in their teaching or in their works, will not be saved. They will be destroyed. This person is not a true believer. And they will be judged in a different way than believers will be judged. Okay, remember the church, the temple is Holy. The word holy means to be set apart, sanctified. Sanctified is a word that can mean like we're getting more and more like Jesus. And it can be meaning, and holy can be like that too. We think sometimes holy is righteousness. But the other aspect of that word is to be set apart. How many of you, when you're eating dinner, you have like your favorite item on the plate and you set it apart because you want to eat that last? Or some of you who do eat it first, right? How many of you like to make sure your food doesn't get like all combined on your plate? You know, all mashed up and mixed up? You set it apart, okay? Doesn't mean your food's holy, okay? But God can make all things, right? <laughs> God sets us apart from all of creation, from all others. We're made holy. There's a reminder here that the church doesn't belong to me or to you. Who sets us apart? God does. Okay, so we best not mess with God's holy, set-apart church. Nobody should. Now these people, these destroyers, are also described in 2 Peter 2. You can turn there with me if you want. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. By the way, this is tomorrow's devotion. So there's going to be some stuff in the blog tomorrow about this passage. But it says this. False prophets, who also arose among the people... So you have Paul, the foundation layer and the architect, and you have Apollos, who's the contractor doing the building. And then you have false prophets and false teachers. They also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, among us, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly, that means they're teaching from within and guarding and cloaking the things that they say so as to make even, it says in passages, even believers would follow after them. But they're destructive heresies. Even, it says, denying the master, who is, 1 Corinthians 3, the foundation. Denying the foundation. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Who bought them? The master who would have bought them. And bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And it says here, sadly, many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality means they're following their guts. They're following their feelings. 
So the false teachers following their feelings and all who follow them follow their feelings. The feelings are mutual, right? That's what that means. And because of them, the way of truth, so my feelings at odds with the truth, I'm going to follow my feelings, and in doing so, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And these false prophets, false teachers, in their greed, they will exploit you. Remember, love is giving of myself, sacrificing of myself for your benefit. If you think of the word lust, take away just the sexual connotation of that word. Lust means to take from you for what I believe to be my own benefit. And we want to say believe to be because we know that its end is destruction. I'm wrong. But I believe it to be my own benefit, and so I take it away from you. These false teachers, in their greed, will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago, their destruction, 1 Corinthians 3, is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So these are those who tear down the building, those who tear down the church. They will destroy it, and it says that they will be destroyed. So in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 3, and in the rest of Scripture, we see two kinds of judgment. We see two kinds of judgment. We see a judgment of condemnation, a judgment of condemnation, and we see judgments of commendation. Commendation. Uh, This passage today speaks primarily of this kind of commendation. And I say judgments because there seems to be different times of commendation style judgment depending on if you're an old testament saint new testament saint a martyr from the tribulation period and so on and so forth okay but those are all judgments of commendation of reward and the judgment of condemnation is often called the great white throne judgment and that's because of what we see in revelation 20 this is revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 says this Then I, and I as the Apostle John, I saw a great white throne, hence the name, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, think of the glory here, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, not the dead in Christ, but the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you have books, which is seemingly deeds. You have the book of life, which is your standing. Are you alive or not? But these people are, it says, dead. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done, their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, the grave, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one of them, according to what they had done. Uh, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Remember, death is a word that means separation. So we are born spiritually dead, right? We do not have fellowship and union with Christ because of our sin, because we're born in sin. And God then works like we talked about in John chapter 3. We are born from above. God gives us birth, and we are made to be alive and united with Christ. 
we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins if we put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. These people in this judgment, the second death, separation from God, these people were spiritually dead, they're brought before the throne in judgment, and then they are forever separated from God for eternity after that. And that's what we usually call hell. That is the second death. It says in this passage, um, death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, notice it doesn't say the deeds book, right? We all have deeds. But if their name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So these are all those who have rejected God, who have rejected Jesus Christ. And... This is the ultimate destruction that is proposed or promised to the one who would be the destroyer of God's temple in today's passage in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17. So that's the judgment of condemnation. And then, for the believer, our judgment of commendation, of reward. Okay, we, uh, what we just talked about is hard, isn't it? And it's sad. It grieves us. And then this judgment, we think of the word judgment, and it can automatically have a negative connotation, but this is a commendation judgment. This is a reward. And so this, for this, we praise God and know that it's all of his grace. It says this, to those who uh, have rejected Christ, their names are not found written in the book of life, but if you've repented and put your faith in Christ, your name is written in that book. And when the books are opened and your works judged, because your name is written in that book, the book of life, you are saved. God has given you life and made you his child. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? (laughs) You could take any person on the face of this earth, save Jesus, and take out the books And what are you going to find? I'll tell you one thing we're going to find for all of us. Sin. Grounds for condemnation. And for those who reject Christ, those grounds remain. And they must be judged. But for those who have repented of their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ, what did Christ do for us on the cross? All of the condemnation, all of the judgment, that all of our sin perfectly recorded in God's knowledge has been totally paid for. And there's now no condemnation for us. Praise God. All that remains then is to just evaluate. To evaluate our works. And for the purpose of reward. We're going to have our works evaluated for the purpose of reward. God has chosen to reward us for our works. Church, that's not fair. (laughs) That's not fair. Sometimes you might hear the argument or the accusation that it's not fair that a good God would allow these kinds of things to happen to people. And, And you know what? These kinds of people all have things written in those books that deserve condemnation. God is gracious to all who still live and breathe. What's not fair is that I'm going to get rewards. What's not fair is that I have eternal life. 
Somebody must have jumped in and done something for me. Absolutely. Jesus Christ. It's not fair. And so all the glory and praise goes back to him. Our judgment seat is called the Bema judgment seat. That's what the name that's given to it from scripture. Because uh, the Greek word for judgment used in this context, can you guess what the Greek word is? Bema, yeah, or Bema. That's what it says, okay, and I'll show you what we're in just a minute. That's why it's called for the Christian, the Bema, or the Bema judgment seat. Now, these judgment seats, the Bema seats, were elevated throne-like seats in the towns, in the cities. And they were used by officials for giving speeches, orations, uh, to hear and decide cases. And the Bema seat was also used to award athletes for their accomplishments, Usually with different types of crowns. Now listen to these scriptures. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or a perishable crown. But we, an imperishable. 1 Corinthians nine twenty four and 25. You watch the, remember the old Greek Olympic Games? They gave them their medal, right? That's our tradition now. You put the, the medal around their neck. But what else, what else did they do? In, in hearkening back to history in the Greek Olympiad, they put on their heads the, that wreath, right? That crown. Second uh, Timothy. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And First Peter 5, so we had Paul, we had James, we have Peter. First Peter 5.4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's, that's for pastors. Yeah. All right. So we know that all who are in Christ are going to be judged, but this judgment is the bema. They're going to be judged with a judgment of commendation. Uh, the question then is, what is the basis for this judgment? And there's two. Two bases for this judgment. Number one, conduct, our conduct. Second Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat. Guess what the Greek word is there for judgment seat? The bema seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done, our deeds, our conduct in the body, whether good or evil. But it doesn't just stop there. Remember, God looks at the heart. The second basis of judgment is our motive. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness. It doesn't mean it's all just darkness like sinful. It just means nobody sees it because nobody knows our hearts. But God's going to bring all of that to light. And it says, will disclose, he will disclose the purposes of the heart. 
and then each one will receive his commendation from God. So, as Christians, what we do matters. We are commanded as Christians to be set apart, to be holy. We are commanded to study and know God's word. We're commanded to live righteously. We are commanded to do everything for God's glory, to serve one another, to love our neighbors. We're commanded to take the gospel to the lost. And among other things, encapsulating everything, we are commanded to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our obedience to all of this will be a component of our reward. Did we do that which was right? But then God looks at the heart. We're also judged for our motives. Did I do what was right for the right reason? For example, did I live a set-apart life in arrogance because I thought I was better than lost people? Or was I set apart because of my loving, faithful obedience? Did I study God's word to impress people or to get parents off my back? Or because I wanted to know the mind of the Lord and his will for all of life and godliness? Did I join the committee to make sure things went the way I wanted them to? Or to use the abilities that God gave me to move our church forward in the Great Commission? Did I belt out worshipful songs to make sure people around me could hear and appreciate my abilities? Or to minister to others and to praise the Lord? Did I live righteously because I was scared of what my family would think of me? Or because I wanted to honor Christ and be salt and light in the world around me? Did I serve other people to get their praise and adoration or to give praise and adoration to my Savior? Did I give financially to see my name end up on a plaque somewhere or to further the mission of the kingdom? Did I show kindness to my neighbors to keep my professional options open and ensure that I had people on my side? Or did I love my neighbor because Christ first loved me and I wanted them to have a window into the grace of God? Did I fix someone's car to get them to stop nagging me or to bless them and to save them some much-needed money? Did I take the gospel to the lost on that missions trip because I'd always wanted to travel and this is the way I could do it or because my heart went out to those who were headed to hell and because God is worthy of their praise? All of these things are good things to do. And the first motive was always wood, hay, and stubble. Building on the foundation? Yep. Going to burn up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The second motivation, though, gold, silver, precious stone. So, let's be real here. Every Christian here today probably has some wood, hay, and straw in our building records. Yes? I certainly do. Praise God for this. One day, all that's going to be burned up and gone forever. Amen? The worst... Think about this. The worst of my judgment, the worst of your judgment is going to be seeing our selfish record burned away forever, never to return. That's pretty sweet. Will we suffer loss in that? Yes, for a moment. And then all that's left will be all good from there. Praise God for that. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Now, hopefully all of us have gold and silver and precious stones 
And by God's grace, may those building materials continue to grow in our building here at First Baptist. And it is by God's grace. One more passage for you today. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved Christians, as you have always obeyed, that's nice words, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, meaning do the work, work it out, get it to pour out of you with fear and trembling, thinking about that Bema judgment. For it is God who works in you, who works in you, both to will, the desire, the motive, and to work, the deed. These are the two criteria for our commendation, aren't they? God does both in us for, it says, his good pleasure. So think about this now. You run the race as an Olympian. You have coaches. And then you have that judge who watches the runners cross the finish line. And who gives you your medal? Who gives you your crown? The, the judges, right? But think about this. Not so for us. We run our race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we cross that finish line and he is the judge who rewards us for our race well run. But he's also the one who gave us our legs. He's also the one that helped our muscles develop, who gave our lungs the breath they need to get the oxygen to our body to help us to run the race speedily. God isn't just the judge. He's also the giver of life, the giver of abilities and skills, the Spirit of God giving us the gifts as the church to minister to and serve one another. So Jesus Christ is going to reward me and reward you for the things that he enabled you to do. We get to be along for the ride. (laughs) Praise God. That's not fair either, is it? God is good. Praise God for his glorious grace. It says in Revelation 4, the elders will throw their crowns at Jesus' feet. It doesn't actually say that anywhere else in Scripture, that all of us will. We think about that a lot. A lot of people say that. It certainly does seem like an appropriate response, doesn't it? Since all of it is of his doing. It's all rooted in his goodness anyway. So we'll see what happens. I'm sure it'll be awesome one way or the other, okay? Now as we close, let's, let's think about this. In this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 3, in both the farming and in the building, the temple illustrations, in both of them, we are both the workers... And the product, we are both. I am to serve as a farmer and as a builder, as your pastor, and I will give an account for my work and for the quality of my building. Not my building like your mind, but my, my process of building, the quality of my work. Does that make sense? So I gotta ask myself, am I using cheap fertilizer for this farm? Am I building the temple of God with straw? Isn't he worth more than that? And we are all in this together. Remember, we all have to ask ourselves these questions. And also, 
Remember, we are the building. We are the temple. So how we work, how we work both in our conduct and in our motives affects the quality, affects the spiritual vitality of our church. We are the building, so who we are affects this building. Who we are affects this building. And what we do affects this building. It can be so easy for us to get comfortable, to get used to things, to settle. When we look at things as if it's just our stuff, it's just the way it is, we can get used to it and, and settle for less. And it doesn't bother us. But look at the people around you. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at your children and your grandchildren. Think about the new believers that by God's grace will come and become a part of this church. Think about those people. Not numbers, not dollars and cents, not bricks and mortar, souls. Do we want to build into them with wood, hay, and straw? Or with gold and silver and precious stones? And of course, above all that, this is God's. This is God's. It's His possession. It's His doing. We belong to Him. So therefore, let's make it our aim. Paul said, dead or alive. Let's make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, let's do it all for the glory of God. Not just what we do, but why we do it. Let's pray together. God, we make an attempt right now to thank you for your amazing, glorious grace. You have truly given us what we do not deserve. And to think that you would reward us for the very things that you enable us to do. Uh, God, we would look forward to the time where we could, if we can, lay our crowns at your feet and praise you and thank you for all eternity. And never being able to get tired of it. Enjoying your glory and your presence. God, thank you for that unbelievable gift. And God, thank you for making what was unbelievable believable by your grace as well, that we would be able to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that there, that there would be a person here today who is not on the foundation of Christ, who has not repented and put their faith in you. God, work in their heart even today. May we as a church have eyes to see and be receptive to the need. And, and be willing to talk and to share and ask questions and pray and, and sow and water the seed of the gospel. And God, help us to grow. God, may we all build into this building that is your building with gold and silver and precious stone that we would do our very best and all for your glory, your honor, and your praise. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.